The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Aaron Rothermel, and I'm the pastor for Children's and Family Discipleship. I know some of you have been under the COVID rock, and so you might uh, not have met me yet. And if that's the case, I'd love to meet you. But this morning, I have something more important than as I am delighted to bring the Word of God to open it and read it and declare it uh, to you this morning. So pray with me. Father, we need your word. Father, we, we need you to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to understand your word. Father, speak words of life to us. Show us your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Convict and comfort us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, we pray. My parents taught me almost everything I know about home ownership. The other 5% I learned on the internet. I was supposed to get a laugh, but that's okay. <laughs> but, but there's truth to that. No home ownership course can teach me what I learned through the years of watching my parents, day in and day out, take care of the home that I grew up in. When Liz and I bought our first house, you could say we had an ambition to have a house that we could raise our family in, that we could be hospitable with and invite uh, friends and neighbors to uh, barbecues in the backyard and share gospel hospitality. When we were looking at a house, we were counting the cost of, of that ambition. We, we looked at the, the, the price that we would be paying for the house, and not only in terms of a, a you know, monthly payment, but also what kind of work needed to be done on the house. But watching my parents day in and day out as I was growing up take care of a house gave myself and Liz with her parents likewise the confidence to say we can, we can pay this cost. We've seen this done. We know how to remove old carpet. We know how to strip a wall down to the studs which thankfully we haven't had to do in our home. We know how to uh, remodel. We know how to mow the lawn and all of those things that go into home ownership. Now, if we were to be able to say that home ownership is an ambition, the hidden story behind every ambition is often imitation. And similarly, Paul in this text serves as a profound example of Christ-like character and courage. And he models for us the cost of gospel ambition. As we read in, just read in this text, was read this morning, Acts 21, 1 through 36, it's situated in a time of great social anxiety, especially in Jerusalem. Paul going to Jerusalem is a lot like Daniel going to the lion's den, or David facing Goliath or for Lord of the Rings appreciate uh, fans out there, Frodo going to destroy the Ring of Power at Mount Doom. All throughout Acts, we have read in places that there are plots against Paul's life 
And the center of such plotting is found in one place, the city of Jerusalem. Now this story, this narrative, this account, this true historical account that Luke gives has three sections. Paul on a farewell tour to Jerusalem. Second, Paul with James and the Jerusalem elders. And third, Paul falsely accused and a mob forming around to kill him. Let's begin with the first section in verses 1 through 16, Paul's farewell tour on his way to Jerusalem. I'm not going to read this section because it was just read, but I want to point out that in this section, verses 1 through 16, there are two locations, with the exception of Jerusalem, that Paul describes and highlights in detail. Tyre and Caesarea. The first stop that's, that's told in detail is Paul stops in Tyre. And he stays there for a week. And when he leaves, there's a Minnesota goodbye on the beach. Men, women, and children all follow Paul out to the beach. And as he gets on the boat, they pray with him and say goodbye. I think that's significant. But Acts 20, 22 through 24 Paul says that in every place the Spirit has warned him that imprisonment and affliction await him in Jerusalem. And this is actually the most important thing that happens in the scene at Tyre. They warn Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. In the Spirit, they warn Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Bad things will happen there. Next, Luke stops and tells us about Paul's stop in Caesarea. And right away we notice the mention of Philip. Now for those of you who remember from Acts 8, Philip, the story of Philip is told immediately following the scattering of the Jerusalem church by the persecution of who? Paul. Then called Saul. We can read in 8, 4 through 5. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So Jerusalem is scattered, and the gospel continues. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And Philip, and we read in verse 40, after, Paul, after Philip preaches the gospel to the Ethiopian, Philip found himself to Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea, which is where we find him in our text. Now, I mention this because not only is it interesting, but I think God is giving us a clue in these details and a reminder that God's purposes advance even in the midst of great tragedy and persecution, even when those who are called to gospel ministry are made to flee, God's purposes still remain. But in this section in Caesarea, The most significant account that we're told is a man named Agabus comes down from Judea. He takes Paul's belt, and in an act of prophetic theater, he binds himself and says these words, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. This is not the first time that we hear Paul is warned about going to Jerusalem. We hear once in 20, we hear again in, earlier in Tyre. 
This is the third time that Luke mentions it. He mentions it in the most vivid detail. And the response is electric. Verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. That we includes Luke and Paul's own missionary team. On hearing Agabus, his warning, join the warnings and urgings against going to Jerusalem. And here at this point, we get a beautiful glimpse of the humanity of Paul. Verse 13, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Does anyone have a glass of water? I should have brought one. But I will continue. Paul is not a narcissist hell-bent on mission, oblivious to the human toll and cost. Paul is one who's fully in touch with the human and relational cost. He's, He's acutely aware. But there's something that compels him towards Jerusalem despite the cost. What is that thing? Thank you. What's that thing? We don't have to guess. Paul tells us the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The name of, the, of Jesus Christ is shorthand for all that Christ is. You and I know exactly what this means in a, in a very small way. When we want to buy a house or some other similar project in terms of scale, our name and our FICO score mean a lot in terms of our capabilities and opportunities. A name and reputation can garner millions and billions of dollars. With the right name and reputation, people can speak at galas for unspeakable amounts of money because of who they are. There have even been some who've made estimates that they can value their name alone in terms of billions or millions of dollars. But there's no name under heaven that can rescue us from the debt we owe to sin. There's no name that can resurrect the dead except one. The name of Jesus Christ is priceless. Now when Paul's companions recognized that Paul's mind was made up. They ceased to urge him, saying, verse 14, let the will of the Lord be done. They went up to Jerusalem, which brings us to our second scene. Verses 17 through 26, Paul with James and the Jerusalem elders. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They're all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They, they, they will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, 
and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. And this section is of Paul with James and the Jerusalem elders. Paul and his team arrive, meet up with the elders, give a report, and consult about Paul's stay in Jerusalem. Here we read, one, the Jerusalem elders rejoice in the advance of the gospel among Gentiles. As we read in verse 19, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done. We see highlighted here for us the work of God. Luke is foregrounding what is to come within the context of past grace. God is faithful. Jesus is on his throne. And the second point of this section is the Jerusalem elders give counsel seeking to guard gospel unity. The action the elders encourage Paul to do is to participate with four men who have sworn vows and pay for their expenses. Luke doesn't tell us what vow they are fulfilling, but it's very likely it is the Nazarite vow, a special vow of consecration to the Lord. He doesn't name it specifically, but I think it's not that important. The, the main point is the clarification of misunderstanding and preserving gospel unity. You can read number six later this week if you're interested in reading more about what the Nazarite vow entailed. But there's some wisdom for us to glean from Paul and the Jerusalem elders. First, wisdom doesn't unnecessarily offend. Wisdom doesn't delight in giving offense. When truth is uncompromised, and that's a critical point, wisdom first seeks clarification and harmony. Second, as the saying goes, discretion is better than, is, is the better part of valor. Or more importantly, as Proverbs 27, 12 says, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. There's no wisdom in ignoring danger signs. As we see in Paul's example, there may be good reasons for going into danger, but not needlessly. The Jerusalem elders counsel Paul using their discernment, seeking to avoid unnecessary trouble and conflict. Now, having said that, there are times when wisdom does necessarily offend And knowing the difference is a wisdom call. Just two examples for our consideration. Galatians 5.12, Paul writes, I wish that those who trouble you would emasculate themselves. Matthew 23.27, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Knowing when truth spoken pointedly is a helpful wound, like breaking a bone that needs to be reset, and when it will only cause inflammation is a wisdom call. There are some guidelines for us to think through when discerning how to speak. First, it's good for us to discern our own personalities and the Spirit's prompting 
Do we love a good argument? Or do we tend to shrink back from conflict? Are we walking in the Spirit and discerning wisdom from the Scriptures? Are we speaking out of anxiety and stress? Second, are we shrinking back from declaring the whole counsel of God? As Paul exhorted the Ephesian elders in 2027. Is there something that is true from the Scriptures that we are muting or massaging by our silence? And third, I think it's helpful to note that in both the case of Paul in Galatians 5 and in the case of Matthew 23, Paul and Jesus are speaking offensively and strongly not to insult, but to serve the flock. Jesus is pronouncing woe upon the highly respected teachers of the law to warn us all against the leaven of the Pharisees, an appearance of righteousness that leads to our doom. If my five-year-old picks up a bottle of bleach and says, Daddy, is it okay to drink this? I'm going to say, no, it's not. Put it down. Even though the person, who, part of me that took chemistry classes and the nerd inside once could say, well, in the right concentration, but that wouldn't be helpful. I'm going to say clearly, no, that's a danger. Paul is using this kind of logic, and he's speaking harshly against those who were troubling the church in Galatians and strongly against the dangerous idea that works of the law will earn us salvation or better standing with God. The gospel is at stake. Strong words are delivered for the sake of the surpassing work of Christ. But in this case, it's not strong words that are required, but clarification. Now, notice something the elders are not asking Paul to do. They're not asking him to hide the truth or to cover up his real views or to apologize but they're asking him to clarify his true views that the Mosaic law is still good, just no longer necessary. The elders are giving counsel that is consistent and in the spirit of keeping with the truth. Don't miss this important point. The, the elders are giving Paul counsel, keeping with the philosophy of ministry developed in Acts 15. They're pointing Paul to the letter that was written to help discern conflict and help maintain gospel unity. They're not playing this by ear. They're making decisions based on biblical and gospel conviction. And the reasoning is simple. As we see in verse 20, there are now thousands of Jews who've come to faith in Jesus, and they've heard rumors that Paul is not only telling Gentiles they don't have to circumcise, but he's telling Jews living among Gentiles, you don't have to circumcise and you can throw out the Mosaic law. And they have a solution. Demonstrate that you're not anti-Moses, but going with these four men under a vow, join them in their purification at the temple and pay for their expenses. And two... Gentiles should continue to follow the advice we gave them in our letter, written in Acts 15, that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. And Paul heeds their advice and goes to great lengths 
to avoid offending Jewish believers through misunderstanding. But as we shall see in verse 27, that is not sufficient to prevent the trouble that is brewing in the city of peace. Third scene, verses 27 through 36, Paul falsely accused and a mob. The city of Jerusalem in early AD 50 was loaded with religious and political energy. In less than 20 years, that tension would culminate in the destruction of the temple by the Romans. Now remember that Paul is in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. If you remember from Acts 2, they were in Jerusalem, verse 5, during Pentecost, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And just to recall to mind what the multitude of every nation of heaven looks like, we can read chapter 2, verse 9, and see Luke's description with Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. I don't know what was in Paul's mind when he went at the time of Pentecost, but there is a strategic reason for Paul to go to Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. Whatever happens to him there will be for the good of all people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We know that Paul wanted to be in Jerusalem, not just to be in Jerusalem, but to be in Jerusalem in Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, Luke tells us in 2016 he was hastening to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Well, among the multitudes that were crowding the Jerusalem streets, there were Jews from Asia who hated Paul. And Luke's account takes a turn right at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people. And the law in this place, wherever he has brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. Now notice the false accusation might is likely not coming from Christian believers in Jerusalem, but it's more likely coming from a similar source to the same Jews who caused the riot in Ephesus, which is a major city in what was then called Asia. Troublemakers who in their religious zeal let their religious anxiety get the best of them. I mean, listen to their words. Men of Israel, help! There's desperation there. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere. There's a totalizing of Paul's impact. They're, they're freaking out. They know that this guy is going to tear down Moses and the Jewish nation brick, brick by brick, and they bring charges. 
Let's not miss the charges they bring and their significance. Paul is teaching everyone everywhere. That's true, but that's not the problem. Paul is teaching everyone everywhere against the people, against the law, and against this place. By this place, they mean the temple, the place where God's people meet to worship God according to his law. By saying that Paul is teaching everyone everywhere against the people law in this place, they're saying he's a huge threat to everything that, that Jews everywhere hold dear. Remember that Paul was a Pharisee trained under Gamaliel. They thought, he was tra- uh, they thought he's a trained rabbi. He's turned traitor. He, he's a renegade who, who's joined the forces of Rome in his own way, trying to crush the Jewish way of life. Men of Israel, help. But the last charge is the last straw. He even brought G- Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. <laughs> now, defilement of the temple is a serious charge. And it was a charge that brought with it death. At this time, the, in the temple, there was a sign. There were signs posted outside the, the court say, warning Gentile visitors that if you enter here, your life is forfeit. Well, the charge was made, and all of Jerusalem is in an uproar. As we read in verse 30, Then all the city was in an uproar, and all the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and once the gates were shut. They dragged Paul out of the temple because they planned on killing him right there. And Rome acted quickly. There's a garrison of soldiers stationed in a fortified tower called Antonia that overlooked the temple because the Romans wanted to keep a close eye on the religious activities of the Jews. And if they ever turned political, they were poised to act. And act fast, they did. We read that the tribune and his soldiers ran down the stairs towards Paul and the crowd around him. Which is true, he could run from the tower down into the colonnades around the temple. And Luke tells us in verse 32 and following, When they, that is the crowd, saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, the tribune did what any self-respecting Roman officer would do. He ordered him to be taken to the barracks, which is that fortified garrison above the temple. And when they were leading Paul up the steps to the, the fort, Paul was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of people followed, crying out, away with him. And the dramatic part of me wants to end the sermon right there. Read that again. He was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of people followed, crying out, away with him. The desire for justice by the mob was so strong that even as Paul was in chains and being carried up the stairs to the Antonia 
fortress, they were compelled to continue to cry out, away with him. Don't miss the significance of that statement. It essentially means kill him. There is little difference from the phrase crucify him. Paul in this text is clearly portrayed in a way that should cause us to think of Christ. The sermon title is Follow Paul as He Follows Christ. And so as we look at Paul and his gospel ambition that we looked at last week and consider the cost of that ambition this week, we'll do well to consider what Paul's example offers for us today. Okay, what are five takeaways from Paul's example for us today? One, Paul is driven by gospel ambition. And by this I mean he is compelled and constrained by the Holy Spirit. His own desires and other ambitions are subordinate to the ambitions he has for the name of Jesus Christ being made known throughout the world. We read in verse 13 of this chapter, For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. This is the ambition we've put on the wall over there, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. We want to pay the cost of that ambition because it's worth every penny and more. Oh, that we may live with the freedom that comes from a heart that is willing to pay that cost. A heart that embraces that way of thinking and living will experience the fullest joy that comes from the treasure that we have in Christ. Two, Paul's characterized by love. The churches in this passage, we see the reciprocation of that love. Entire, Luke records that they and the women and children followed Paul to the beach to say goodbye. And at Caesarea, Paul is emotionally moved by his brothers and sisters in Christ where they're urging him not to go to Jerusalem. He says in verse 13, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? It's not lack of love that is evident in Paul's commitment to go to Jerusalem. It is a competing and higher love. Our love for family and friends and church are not lessened when our love for Christ is supreme but put in proper order. Three, Paul values children. This is the only place in the book of Acts that mentions children as characters in the narrative. You know, there's there's only one other relevant point in Acts that mentions children by name, and that's the Pentecost sermon of Peter in chapter 2, 39, where he says, the promise, that's the gospel, is for you and for your children and for all who are far far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The gospel is for children. Paul, in his gospel ambition, does not neglect children, but sees them as a vital part of his ambition. 
Four, Paul models humility. Paul is not only characterized by gospel ambition and by love, but Paul's also characterized by humility. We see his humility on display in his seeking the wisdom that comes from seeking the plurality of elders' counsel. Five, Paul doesn't entrust himself to crowds. Paul listens to the wisdom of plurality, but not the foolishness of crowds. Yes, Paul submitted himself to the counsel of the Jerusalem church, taking their advice seriously, but he did not entrust himself to the opinions of crowds. I have a pastoral comment for each one of us. How much influence does the crowd have on your own thinking and view of the world? How much does social media and perhaps other media frame your perspective on what is happening in our world? In the age of social media, there are those who profit from you and I believing that social media will change the world for the better. Social media, in many ways, is like the crowd in this passage. And much like this crowd, it has the ability to exert a lot of influence on our world, including our own thinking and perspective. Unfortunately, the crowd in this text picks up false accusations just as easily as true ones. And this is the world that the scriptures know well, one where even the best intentions cannot escape the twisting of the truth by sin. But Paul bears false accusations with a gospel mindset. He's not surprised when such things come. We should follow Paul's example in this. We all will face moments and seasons where we'll experience some form of persecution for our faith in Christ. As was mentioned earlier, some of us know people or have heard stories of recent activities in Afghanistan where brothers and sisters in Christ face real danger or have had to leave their homes as the power and authority in the area changes. Persecution for most of us here will not look like guns, and threats, having to flee our homes and burn our books. But being a follower of Jesus requires courage, nonetheless. You may face this challenge at work when you're passed over for a promotion because it's clear you don't fit the new morality. Kids, you may face this challenge in school or in your neighborhood when taking a stand for Christ costs you something. It may be in your own family, as family members push you to the periphery, you're the odd one, the religious one. Now such things can be subtle, and yet our model is Paul, who doesn't get caught up in those things in a way that causes his eyes to look ever inward at his own suffering. He knows his suffering is real, but he looks with greater purpose on the person of Christ. And he sets his ambitions that much more on the name of Jesus. 
And just like Paul's ultimate charges against him are false accusations, the twisting of his actual teaching and thinking, we ought not to be surprised if it's the same with us. We ought to be prepared to suffer, not with accusations of being Christians, but with the false accusation of being the wrong types of Christians, unloving and hateful Christians. We see this caution about crowds in other places in Scripture. The Old Testament describes time and time again that the unfaithfulness of Israel follows the unfaithfulness of kings and queens. And most importantly, we see in John 2, 24 and 25, Jesus does not entrust himself to them, that is the crowds, for he knew what was in man. And we see this exemplified in the Gospels. Jesus entered Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna and departed with cries of crucify him. Crowds are rarely, if ever, innovators or drivers of reform or righteousness. Beware of placing your hope and popular approval. Such approval is fickle, and the winds can change overnight. I don't say this lightly, but persecution is often a good sign. Jesus said, blessed are you when people revile you and say all matters of evil against you, for so they did to the prophets. Matthew 5.11 To follow Jesus is to face tension and opposition, but to do so with his presence. So let's do so with sober courage and grace. Courage to go fearlessly into danger as we're led by the Spirit and grace to represent the goodness of God in the midst of trial. Last question. How does Paul point us to Jesus? Paul's way of living points to the truthfulness of the value of Christ. Because someone does not give up something important unless he has a higher ambition. Paul's life displays the truth of the gospel message. Paul's life demonstrates the worthiness of Jesus. This is a really practical point for us to ask ourselves. Does your life reflect the worthiness of Jesus? Does it reflect the worthiness of Jesus in a way that your kids see it in how you live your day-to-day life? How you use your checkbook? Does your spouse or your neighbors see that you Understand and value the worthiness of Jesus above all. Paul points us to Jesus because he reminds us of Jesus in his actions. As Jesus says in Luke 6.10, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Paul looks and acts like Jesus would act. Here's a quick list of some of the ways. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem with courage, Luke 9, 51. Jesus endured false accusation. When reviled, he did not revile in return, 1 Peter 2, 23. Jesus did not suffer for suffering's sake, but out of obedience for the sake of the gospel, Luke 22, 44. Jesus accomplished his task. He finished well, 
just like Paul aimed to finish well. Lastly, and most importantly, Paul points us to Jesus in a way that gives us hope. Earlier in this text, we're reminded that Paul was once a ravager and persecutor of the church of God, a persecutor of Christ himself. Paul was a sinner. He presided over the execution of Stephen and imprisoned countless others, driving them from their homes. Paul rightly describes himself as the chief of sinners. I know that there are some of you right now that as you're hearing Paul's example, you're saying, I do not measure up to that. There's no way I can imagine having a perspective like Paul has. To put the name of Christ above every ambition? But here's where we need to recognize that Paul, even though he had a past, his present, as we read it, shows an entirely different, transformed man. He has gone from persecutor of Christ to persecuted for Christ. Jesus transformed Paul. He will transform you as well. The same Jesus who transformed Paul and the same Jesus who called Paul to go to Jerusalem by the Holy Spirit is the very same Jesus who has throughout history called countless of others to forsake all for the name of Christ. Our closing song is one called The Reward of His Suffering. And the songwriter in the interview describes the story behind the song. It's based on a phrase made famous in the early 1700s when two German believers, hearing about slaves in the West Indies who would never hear the name of Christ, boarded a ship bound for the West Indies, intending to sell themselves as slaves, plotting never to return for the name of Christ. And as their friends and family gathered at the docks, To see the two men leave, one of the men raised his arm and said, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. This is ultimately what Paul's willingness to suffer points us to. The suffering of the lamb that was slain. Any of our suffering is redeemed by what it points to. The suffering of the only innocent one, Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May the Lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Ultimately, our aim and our hope in any suffering we would experience or are experiencing right now pales in comparison to the eternal weight of glory we have in Christ. Oh, that we might grasp the worthiness of God. To quote Pastor John, when the flame of worship burns with the heat of God's true worth, the light of missions will shine to the darkest peoples on earth. That's my prayer. May the flame of worship burn with the heat of God's true worth within us. Let's pray. Gracious King, 
You are worthy to receive the reward of your suffering. You promised the day when your praise would come. So Lord, let our ambitions die as we lift our Savior high, as we carry the gospel to the world. Lord, this is our prayer. Capture our hearts and let them burn white hot for you as we see that you alone are worthy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.